maybe you should have fair warning before you walk into a congregation of people who are bent on serving their Savior. Determined to do so. Called to do so. You are amidst the people for whom words are not enough. When I came to this city 15 years ago, wondering if God was calling me here, I walked out on the balcony of a hotel. We were on the 11th floor. It was 4 o'clock in the morning. For you old-timers, I know, you already know the story by heart. And I had come from Central Texas where I like to walk out inside the house at night and look up and see the stars. So that night here in New Orleans, I walked out on that balcony and I was looking for stars. <laughs> Nary a star! Not a single twinkle! I'd been praying, oh God, what am I supposed to do? And my eyes went from up here where there were no twinkles to down here where the scattered light stretched out from the base of the building as far as the eye could see. And God said to me, these are your stars now. And I want you to come to New Orleans and help God's people shine like stars as they hold forth the word of life. So, that's my calling in this place. As best I am able for these 15 years, I've been trying to help God's people shine like stars. In the city that care for God, we are bringing in a new theme. This is the city that care affects. And if people love, show compassion and kindness toward one another in this city, it changes the heartbeat. Of the community. Not the city care for God. But the city that care changes. Now there are many places in the Bible. Where God has spoken to my heart. About the practical nature of being a follower of Jesus. And here at First Baptist. We understand discipleship to be. Not you sitting in a chair in a circle so much as you getting up from what you're doing and following the footsteps of Christ as He leaves where you are and goes somewhere. And you'll never be a disciple of Jesus until you get up and get going because He's on the move. And you must be too. It is not a sedentary thing that God has called you to when he drew you to himself through the Savior. 
It is an active, purposeful, significant life. He intends you to live in the world for His glory and the sake of the gospel. We are all very much concerned about the question the expert asked of Jesus in Luke chapter 10, which is where I am this morning, Luke 10 verse 25. We are all very much concerned about it. He stood up and he asked the Lord, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you have a Bible? How do you read it? What do you say? The expert in the law, who was challenging Jesus, came up with the great commandment. There are moments and times in the Scripture when they ask Jesus what the great commandment is, and he gives this response. But in this particular situation, the expert in the law asks, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus threw it back on him. He was concerned about eternal life, which is not just life that never ends, okay? Eternal life in the Scriptures is a quality of life. It's a kind of life. It's the life of God that you enjoy in the here and now. It's not just quantity. It's quality. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The expert in the law asked the question in a way that indicates he's been reading his Bible. You wouldn't have used the word inherit, probably. Inherit eternal life. You might have used some other word, but for him... The word inherit was right, because all the tribes inherited land. And you know the land was divided among the tribes of Israel, and all those tribal properties were divided among the clans and then among the families. And so the psalmist could say, the boundaries have fallen to me in pleasant places. That is, my inheritance in the land is pleasant, it's beautiful, it's good. So when the lawyer asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He knows something deep inside. There's a doing here, he thinks. I must do something. But God ultimately is the one who must give it. Because you don't work for an inheritance, generally speaking. You just receive it. God's got to do it. So when Jesus, the rabbi, throws the question back on him, he comes up with this answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. This is the right answer. Do you want eternal life, my friend, sitting in the pew? Jesus says the right answer is, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, do this, and you will live. 
You will really live. Life will be amazing. You will have eternal life, a God kind of life. It'll be abundant. It'll overflow. It'll be like that spring of water we read about in John chapter 4 as Jesus had the conversation with the woman at the well. It's going to well up in you unto eternal life. You're never going to get thirsty again. There's going to be a life inside of you. Do this and you will live. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer who came up with the answer doesn't appear to be too happy with his own answer. You'd think he'd be jumping up and down. He knows the answer very well. He's the expert in the law. He gave it. He's the one who came up with it. But Luke says that he was wanting to justify himself in an effort to justify himself, feeling some kind of need to justify himself like often we do when we hear the great commandment. A sense of need to justify himself. He asked, not, well, how does a man love God with all his heart? He asked a question not about the first commandment, love God with all your heart, but what concerning what Jesus called the second commandment, which is likened to the first, love your neighbor. As yourself, willing to justify himself, he asked the question, and who is my neighbor? Revealing to us his problem is not with the first commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Got that? Check that box. Go to church every every week. Whatever you think are the religious duties of a person who is serious about their faith. Check, 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 check. Love God with all your heart. Got that done. His justification problem is not with the first commandment, but with the second. Love your neighbor. As yourself. And so we ask the question. Who is my neighbor? Reflecting the fact that he. Like all of the rabbis of his day. Were perplexed by the command. Love your neighbor as yourself. This instruction from the sermon that Moses preached. His final sermon. And so they talked about who their neighbor was and that what they needed to do, they felt, was whittle on the definition of neighbor. And if they could get the word neighbor down narrow enough and close enough and manageable enough, then they could keep the second commandment too. But until they did that, it just seemed impossible, loving your neighbor as yourself. And so the question, well, who is my neighbor? And if you can define it as narrowly as possible... Well, that's good. You can walk out of the worship place saying, hey, I love my neighbor. I discovered my neighbor's just my wife. I love her. Okay? That's who my neighbor is. The people I want to love, the people I'm expected to love, those are my neighbors. I love them. So I'm good on the second commandment. If you're like the expert in the law, and if you're like me, when I hear, love your neighbor as yourself, I squirm a little. The Holy Spirit squeezes my heart a little. And I feel this sense that I'm not there yet. And in response to the expert's question, 
who is my neighbor. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, the story of the Good Samaritan is the longest explanation in the Bible of what it means to love your neighbor. It is focused on this question. Who is my neighbor? It intends to explicate explain and describe what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves who beat him up, stripped him of his clothes, wounded him, stole everything he had and left him half dead by the side of the road. A priest happened along that way. And he saw the man lying in the ditch. And he passed by on the other side of the road. A Levite came along, saw the man in the ditch, and also passed by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan man passed that way, saw the man, and had compassion on him. He turned aside. He went to him. He poured oil and wine into his wounds and bandaged them. He picked the man up and he put him on his donkey. He carried him to the inn and he paid the innkeeper. And he said, anything more that thou spendest, when I return, I will repay you. Then Jesus said to the expert in the law, Who was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? And the expert said, The one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus gave that often quoted summary. Go thou. What? And do likewise. Say it with me. Go thou and do likewise. One more time. Go thou and do likewise. One more time. Go thou and do likewise. That's how Jesus ended the story. Now there are a lot of things I could tell you about this parable. But I want to focus on something this morning. That pertains to the work of First Baptist New Orleans. It pertains to the ministry fair that we are having this morning and the effort that we are taking to connect the word of the gospel. And we believe people are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. We don't believe there's an activity that you can engage in when you go outside those doors that will bring you salvation. There's not an assignment you can fulfill that you can go out those doors and go do and be saved. You are saved by the grace of God alone. We are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, not by works, lest any man should boast. That's how Paul put it in his summary. It is by grace we are saved. So if you're going to become part of the family of God, you're going to have to trust Jesus as Savior and experience his grace. And that means setting aside the pride 
The notion that you can be good enough, that one day you'll stand before God and everybody will be amazed, God and you included, when it turns out that you were, in fact, good enough. You made it, maybe just barely. (laughs) That's not how it works. There is one perfect one who died for you, shed his blood for you, paid the penalty for your sin. And the scripture says, He died on our behalf so that we might be healed. By his stripes, we are healed. And what it means is that we experience healing within, the forgiveness of sin, the restoration of our life through faith in Christ and what he did upon the cross. We never waver from this message in all the work of kindness and love which we do. We never veer from this truth that it is the grace of God alone that saves a man. But we believe that the gospel is communicated not only by words but also by deeds. And not simply by deeds of personal holiness. That is, well, I haven't lied, I haven't stolen. I haven't been unfaithful to my wife. I must be a good Christian. No. There are works of righteousness which God calls us to do that Jesus emphasizes in many of his stories and parables which are about sins of omission. Things we omit to do, forget to do, choose not to do. Which actually are to characterize the life of the saved, the redeemed, the followers of Jesus. So when I say discipleship is about getting up and going somewhere, I mean it literally. There's something about the way you carry on your life in the world. That is to be a light that brings glory to the Father and demonstrates who you are. Now, loving your neighbor means this kind of quality of life, okay? Here's the Samaritan walking along. He sees the man who's been beat up. He turns aside and he goes over there. Love walks into a trial. Don't you know this Samaritan gentleman realizes this is a mess. He does, doesn't he? He realizes this is a mess when he turns aside to go help the man. It's dangerous. There could be people lurking in the bushes to jump out on him. Maybe this guy's one of the gang. But he turns aside to help because love walks into a trial. The priest did not demonstrate love because he was in a hurry. He knew it was too complicated. He'd be late for his meetings, so he went by on the other side of the road. I mean, he he would have liked to help. I'm sure the intention was there. But he did not have the compassion that made him turn aside. He demonstrates what it means not to love your neighbor. Okay? This is the antithesis of the rule, of the command, the priest. Walking by on the side of... He's a good moral man. I don't know that you could fault him in any of his relationships and dealings with people. But he walks by on the other side of the road. He doesn't do the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. 
He hasn't yet discovered life. Jesus said, do this and you will live. And the priest, for all his good character and morality, is not living. He's not living. As the Levite comes along, he too is a religious man. He too has a busy schedule. He too walks by on the side of the road. I'm sure that expert in the law is scratching his head a little bit. He's looking for himself in the story. You know, who is my neighbor? So I'm going to be in this story, right? And the priest comes along and immediately identifies with the priest and thinks, well, that must be me. Whoops. (laughs) I guess it's not me. He walked by on the other side of the road. I got the drift of this story. So I'm not the priest. Here comes the Levite. Hey, maybe I'm the Levite in the story. The Levite walks by on the other side of the road, so I'm not the Levite either. Here comes a Samaritan. Well, I know I'm not a Samaritan. That's one thing I know for sure. Those despised half-breeds, they don't get anything right. They worship on the wrong mountain, for heaven's sake. I'm not a Samaritan. I don't care what he does. He turns aside to help, so so who is the expert in the law in the story? Who is he? He's the man in the ditch. That's who he is. That's who you are. In this story, you are the man in the ditch. Beat up, naked, and half dead, laying by the side of the road. That's you. Mark it down. The Samaritan turns because love walks into a trial. Hey, you heard about the man who was downtown New Orleans and came upon a fellow who apparently had been hurt, maybe stabbed. He took him in his arms. He wanted to help, be a good Samaritan. He flipped open his phone, called 911. The operator answers. And he says, oh, ma'am, I'm in a terrible situation here. I got a guy looks like he's been stabbed down here in New Orleans. I need help right away. The operator says, well, sir, where are you? He says, I'm down here on Chapatula Street. There was a long pause. The operator finally came back and said, sir, could you spell that? There was another pause. And then he said, Ma'am, give me five minutes, I'm going to drag him over to Canal. (laughs) All right? You just stop and help one of these people sometime and see if you can spell Chapatulis. Or whatever comes up out of the blue about helping them. When I saw Annie in this church, I immediately knew she was my neighbor, though I wasn't all that excited about it. I'm just being honest. Some people called her Raggedy Annie. She was dressed in rags from the rescue mission. They didn't fit her well. She was full of needs, including a place to stay. I called the mission. They said, she's worn out her welcome here. She drove her car up on the parking lot. It was full of all her worldly belongings. What a mess. 
So we put her up for the night. And Annie began to be regular. She came back. And she'd need something else. And we'd take care of that. And then Annie show up again. And I mean, it was an unending thing. One after the other. And every time we had a conversation with Annie, she'd pull back the curtain a little bit more and we'd find out a little bit more about her troubles. She had a sickness and made an appointment to go see the doctor. And I told Madeline, wave your hand, Madeline. I said, Madeline, I want you to go with her. And Madeline took her to the doctor and overheard the doctor tell her that she was terminal with her disease. She went to the doctor because right there by that camera, she fell on the floor. And one of our physicians attended to her. And we followed up with this call to the doctor. And we realized Annie was dying. We discovered that she had a house that had flooded in Katrina. We went down there and found no utilities, no water, no gas, no heat, no cool. Nothing had been done to the house. And Joyce and some of the ladies, where are you, Joyce? Went down there and washed all her clothes. Twelve big baskets is what I heard of clothes, Joyce. And while they were there, they found a sign in her apartment. And they brought it to the church because they thought, I wouldn't believe it, I guess. And it's up in Bob's office right now. Bob, wave your hand. You know what it says? Ann Thompson for governor. I said, that can't be Raggedy Annie. They said, yeah, this is Annie. She was a candidate for governor twice in the state and once ran for the Senate. Had an earned Ph.D., taught at Tulane, Delgado. Respected in her field. She wandered into this church one day dressed in rags. And we knew when we saw her, it was complicated. It was difficult. We got her an apartment at the Esplanade on the sixth floor in a hospital bed near the window. And I suppose she was looking out that window the day she died. We had her funeral right here. And most of the crowd came from this congregation who rallied around a woman by the side of the road, beat up, who couldn't go mentally from A to B anymore, but who needed the love of the church of Jesus Christ to surround her, lift her, bear her up, and help her die with dignity. 
She was a believer. She told me she knew the Lord Jesus. Love walks into a trial. I don't want you to think that if you follow Jesus, you're just going to go right through so happy, no problems, it's going to be easy. If you say, yes, I want Jesus in my heart, what assignment he might have for you, I don't know where he might take you. I don't know where the path might lead. But I know that loving people is serious business. And it takes time and energy and resources and the life that God's given you. And sometimes you feel like you're pouring out your life for the sake of those who cannot give you anything back. And when you feel that way, you know this is what Jesus talked about. When he said, love the people that can't love you back. If you love those who don't love you, then you've done something amazing. Love walks into the trial. In the Ninth Ward, in Central City, in Lakeview, in Metairie, love doesn't stop. When the call comes, can you do it? Jesus says, this is what it means to love your neighbor. Go and do likewise. Love pours the healing vial. This story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus could have included a lot of things that were said to the man in the ditch. Do you know, there are no words that Jesus puts in the mouth of the Samaritan for the man in the ditch. He doesn't talk to him. Why? Because a man who's been beat up doesn't need a sermon. He needs bandages. He needs medical attention. He needs somebody to pick him up out of the ditch and get him somewhere. That's what he needs. And brothers and sisters... We got to pour the oil and wine and bandage up the wound because that's what Jesus did. He preached the gospel, he healed the sick, and he cast out demons. And when he sends you out into your world, he sends you out with the good news of God's grace and salvation through him, and he sends you out to touch a hurting, broken, wounded world. And sometimes what the world needs, what the individual, what the neighbor needs in your love is not a sermon, but substance. Love pours the healing vial. Love gives what meets the need. Love cares for the one who is broken. Love pays that price. I don't know what the Samaritan got out of this. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, what's the return on that? You know, you stop by the side road, you help this guy out, I mean, See a prospect for your business? 
Maybe he becomes a paying customer. I mean, what's the return on that? If you're looking for the return on this, watch out. (laughs) Okay? You want the return on this? Walking into that trial, doing what needs done. The return on this is life that bubbles up inside your soul. That's the return on this. The return on this is the joy and the spring in your step and the sense of your significance before God in your world. That's the return on this. And if you're going to do it only if the person responds the way you want them to or you get something out of it, even a thank you, you got to prepare yourself, brother, for the role of servant in this kind of world. We're not looking for the strokes. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you so much. And the thank yous keep us coming. We're not looking for the strokes. We're looking to follow Christ who laid down his life for us. And in this world, we love people like he loved us. And he calls us to love them. And the reward that we have is that we're closer to the Savior. And his life flows in us. And we are satisfied in him. He is our satisfaction. Not what we get out of it. Look, I'm a preacher and I've been so for a long time. If I did just this just for what I was getting out of it, you know, I'd have gone into another occupation. I'm here compelled, compelled by the call of Christ upon my life to be who he's called me to be. I hope you have that same compelling call on your life. Love walks into the trial. Love pours the healing vial. Love goes the second mile. I follow the story of this man. And the more that I read about what this Samaritan does, the more amazed I am. He turns aside by the side of the road. That in itself is noteworthy, yes. I mean, the priest and the Levite have already walked by, but he turns aside. That's important. That's the first step. Move with compassion. He turns his compassion into action. That's what Jesus wants us to do. Turn our compassion into action. Not just feel sorry for people. Not just pity them. But turn our compassion into action. Until you turn your compassion into action, you can't experience the bubble in life that obedience sets to go in in you. He takes the man, he binds up his wounds, he pours in oil and wine. Okay, you've taken care of him. Now he's putting him on his donkey. Doesn't the Samaritan have a schedule? Doesn't he need to be somewhere? What's his family doing? He takes the man to an inn. He pays for the man's stay at the inn. He gives the innkeeper some money. And then he says the thing that you just think, oh, wait. Anything more that you spend, I'll pay when I return, he says. And by the time you're at that point in the story, you're thinking, who lives like that? Do you know anybody who lives like that? 
Lord, I can't seem to live like that. Give my life that way, my resources that way, love that way for a stranger in need. God, this is, this isn't the way people behave in the world, even church people. Who loves like this? And then God reminded me that I'm in a man in the ditch. I'm the fellow beat up and broken. And the story itself is an autobiography of God's wonderful son sent to this planet who turned aside when I was in need and lifted me from the side of the road. I know who loves like this. His name is Jesus. And he's calling you to go and do likewise. Let's bow together. Perhaps you've never trusted Christ as Savior. Would you bow your head right now and just say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. Come into my life. I believe you died on the cross for me, Jesus. Come into my life and be my Savior and Lord. Would you open your heart to the Savior as best you know how? Acknowledging your sin, asking for his forgiveness. Committing your life unto him. Would you respond to this wonderful Lord who laid down his life for you so you could have abundant life? Maybe you've already trusted Christ as Savior, but something's been missing in your experience of faith. You know you're saved, but it's just not how it ought to be. I wonder if the key to a new era of walking with Jesus for you might be taking up this challenge to love your neighbors yourself, to serve in a world that is hurting, to be His hands and feet. God, we pray today that you would speak to those who know you, to those who are searching. And God, through your Holy Spirit, who is present in this room, that you would call us to yourself, men and women, young people, boys and girls, college students, seminary students. God, that you would call us to yourself. And Lord, that you would burden our hearts to live out this calling in our world that we might exemplify the love of Jesus in our own behavior and that of our congregation. Lord, have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.